The following is a message by Dr. Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. We resume on these Thursdays uh, the faculty studies through 1 Corinthians, and the text that we'll be looking at this morning is uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, through chapter 11, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, and continuing to read through what is really the conclusion of Paul's discussion of the issues raised by the question of meat offered to idols. That's chapter 11, verse 1. Hear now God's word. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is God's word. Let's ask him to write it on our hearts this morning. Our God and our Father, we bow before you, thankful that in your amazing plan of redemption, it was your purpose to send your beloved Son, the one who was rich beyond all measure, to to become poor that we through his poverty might be made rich, to become your enemy, treated as your enemy, on the cross of, of Calvary, though he was absolutely innocent, the well pleasing, ever obedient Son, but condemned as your enemy that we, your enemies, might be made your children. And Father, we thank you that with the grace of what Jesus has done for us in his perfect obedience, in his sacrificial death, in his triumphant resurrection, you also bring to us the work of the risen Christ in us by the work of the Spirit, that that last instruction that we heard from your word, that we imitate your servants such as Paul as they imitate Christ, is something that you can do in us and through us, making us into people who reflect the glory of the selfless servant, Jesus, in the way we respond to one another. 
We pray that you'll write your word on our hearts in these few moments that we meditate on it this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, pastoral care is tricky business, so it's always a privilege to watch a wise shepherd of souls, a, a skilled heart surgeon at work. And that's what we see here in the conclusion of Paul's lengthy discussion of what Christians from pagan pasts should think and do about meat offered to idols, whether it's sold in the marketplace or served in an idolatrous temple or served to fellow believers in your own home or served to you in the home of a pagan neighbor who invites you over for dinner, as we heard in this last example. Paul's been talking about this for several chapters now. Actually, from the beginning of chapter 7, he's begun to take up a number of topics on which the Corinthian Christians wrote him questions. The first topic having to do with marriage and sexuality, he addresses all the way through chapter 7. And then it seems that the second topic in their list of questions is this issue of what do we do about meat that has been offered to an idol in a pagan temple, but then is available for consumption outside the temple. What should we do about this? And there's a dispute, apparently, within the church, and uh, presumably everybody in the church, as they write the letter, wants Paul and expects Paul to give a good, clear, crisp, yes or no answer. The champions of enlightened Christian liberty no doubt want Paul to give an unqualified yes. Go ahead, eat the meat, go for it. After all, all things are lawful. That's their motto, that's their mantra. And Paul can repeat that after them as he does in verse 23. On the other hand, the guardians of Christian purity and especially on maintaining clear distinctness from the polluting paganism of the surrounding culture no doubt want Paul to give a clear, resounding, no, don't eat that meat anywhere, anytime. After all, Paul just said in verse 14, we didn't pick up reading that early, but he said, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And they know for certain what that means regarding diet and menu. Or at least they think they do. And yet, In these chapters, instead of giving either group precisely what they wanted, Paul insists on cutting through their presenting problem, as counselors sometimes describe that thing that people want to talk about when they come in for counsel, that problem of idle meat, yes or no. He wants to go deeper. He wants to go to issues that neither side really, really wants to address, and that is to ask questions about motives. What's your motive? Why do you want to eat? Or why are you so quick to condemn those who eat? And again, like a wise shepherd counselor, Paul gives an answer that may seem frustrating to everybody. Shall we eat idle meat or not? And Paul says, well, it all depends. That's really helpful, isn't it? It all depends. I mean, the meat is fine. It's God's meat, created by the Lord, belonging to the Lord, and its trajectory from the pasture to the dinner table cannot change that fact. It still belongs to him. But where are you planning to eat it? And with whom? And especially, how will your eating it influence others and be interpreted by others? Those are the kinds of questions that Paul wants to talk about in these chapters. 
And those have relevance to us too. Now in North America at least, our presenting problems typically are not the question of meat offered to idols. Although in Asia and in other cultures, even today, Christians face the question, should we eat food that has been offered to the spirit of ancestors? A very live issue in the global Christian church. But for us today, the issues are others. Although they are still the issue, how shall I treat my right and my freedom in Christ to participate in actions that scripture doesn't forbid when my actions may impact and influence others and their consciences in a variety of ways? That's still with us. In some circles in North America, it may have to do with respect to the use of alcohol or tobacco products or the explicitness of violence or sex in the films that we see, or the political opinions about what the government should or should not do with respect to the crisis in the economy, or how Christians in the U.S. should respond to those who are not in this country according to our immigration laws, or what clothing is appropriate to wear in worship, or what harmonic and rhythmic patterns fit worship music, or, well, you can fill out the list. Are there biblical principles that address these things? Theologians sometimes call them the adiaphora, the things indifferent, but they're not really absolutely ethically and morally indifferent. And on this issue that Paul is addressing, he has very clear biblical understanding of what the right answer is as to the meat offered to idols. Bottom line, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Verse 26, he's quoting from Psalm 24. Interestingly, that would have <coughs> been, excuse me, that would have been the verse that his rabbinic mentors used to invoke to to uh, explain the requirement that uh, the the people of Israel offer thanks to the Lord before they partake of their meals, kosher meals, of course, uh, clean meals, uh, nothing unclean on the table. But that was the rabbinic rationale for the giving of thanks at the beginning of a meal. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But now Paul applies this text to anything sold in the meat market in Corinth, in pagan Corinth, where who knows how many slabs of steak and roast have been offered to Zeus or Athena or Apollo or one of the other Greek gods before it's sold off to shoppers on the street. Paul knows that that's good meat, not spiritually or religiously defiled. Back in the eighth chapter, he had identified himself with those who have the knowledge that an idol has no existence in the world. And therefore, for a piece of meat to be offered to an idol, a non-existent thing, in no way taints the meat itself, spiritually or religiously. So Paul knows the right answer to the true-fault question that the letter from Corinth had posed. But he knows people too well, and he loves them too much to give so cut-and-dried response and then just leave it there. He insists on making us ask the motive questions. Why do you want to know? What is your underlying agenda? And so in chapter 8, he had said, I can eat this meat with a clear conscience. I know that, but I will not eat it if my eating lures a weak conscience Christian brother into eating it with me, thinking, as in his own mind, that he's still participating 
in communion with the idol to which it was offered. I won't do it. And then in chapter 9, he broadens the principle and deepens the probe into our motives by insisting, I can demand financial support for my services as a preacher and teacher of the gospel. It's only a fair wage, and God's law backs me up on this. It even defends oxen. Surely it defends me. But I will not take pay if my foregoing my right for payback enables me to image in my method the free grace of my message. That's chapter 9. Then in chapter 10, he begins to say, and it's not just about how I might hurt others. I might endanger myself, and you might endanger yourselves, if you want to walk the edge as closely as you can, eating an idol's meat in an idol's temple. There you run the risk of becoming entangled in the clutches of the idols that are Jesus' rivals for our affection and allegiance. And as Paul says just in the verse before I began reading, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? This is a gracious husband, but he's a jealous husband. You don't want to thwart him. And now in the conclusion, he turns our attention outward again to the risks to others. And he says, are you (coughs) passionately and preeminently concerned for the eternal welfare of others? Yes, all things are lawful, but they're not helpful. They don't build up. And he's thinking of what builds up other people. They don't build up other people. As he says in the next verse, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, you see, that's <coughs> he's taking it one step beyond the second great commandment. He can quote elsewhere, Leviticus 19.8, you shall love your neighbor as yourself with approval. That's right. But here he's taking it one step further. Not just love your neighbor as yourself, Love your neighbor more than yourself. And he says this not just here, but elsewhere in his letters as well. Romans 15, verses 1 and 2. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please... Thanks, Chuck. And not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Or Philippians 2, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul is driving at a motive that will turn our hearts inside out so that our compassion and our concern can escape the strong gravitational pull of our own self-centeredness and begin to embrace others with the same natural affection that, with which we protect ourselves and comfort ourselves. That's his concern. What is our motive? Now we'll come back to that in just a moment. But what's interesting is the way Paul uses this one more case study of a situation dealing with meat offered to idols to talk about how a gospel-formed motive should also control our method, how we respond to particular situations. As you see, Paul is painting the scene here in verses 27 through 30, of a Christian accepting a dinner invitation from his pagan neighbor. And then someone at the banquet, we don't know if it's the host or someone else, his neighbor's clearly pagan because it's one of the unbelievers that has invited him. Someone calls the Christian's attention to the fact that this meat has been offered to something holy. All the way through this discussion, Paul has been talking about idolathuta, things offered to idols. Here... The helpful guest or host tells the Christian, this has been 
Hiera futon. This has been offered to a holy thing. So clearly the speaker is speaking from a pagan idolatrous viewpoint. He views the idol as something holy to whom to which the meat has been offered. So what do you do? As Paul has said, as I've mentioned, as we see in his quote from Psalm 24, it's good meat. It's God's meat. That pagan's conscience, that is his perception, that now that he's made a point of the path that the meat took from the pasture through the slaughterhouse to the table, uh, has some problems with it, that pagan's conscience really doesn't count for Paul in terms of his own obligation to God. And yet, Paul says, I'm not going to eat in that venue. I'm free to do so, but I'm going to abstain from one, for one reason only. I wanted to register in that other person's conscience that I trust and serve one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That's his language when he began this discussion in 1 Corinthians 8.6. Maybe this helpful person who wants the Christian to know what's gone on with this meat, maybe he's wanting to help me as a Christian avoid ceremonial defilement from non-kosher food, assuming that Christianity is just a, a subset of Judaism. Maybe he wants to see whether Jesus, for me, is just one more God in a pantheon of gods, so that I can eat this meat that's been offered to one God And I've just added Jesus alongside of others. Paul says, whatever is going on in his mind, I will not eat. Because in his mind, to do so would involve me in worshiping a false god. And so my intention and yours must be to give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Give no stumbling block to faith. Gordon Fee comments, I think, rightly on this comment about not giving offense. He says, to give offense does not so much mean to hurt someone's feelings as to behave in such a way as to prevent someone else from hearing the gospel or to alienate someone who is already a brother or sister in Christ. So Paul is saying, look at your behavior from the outside. Think like missionaries and view what you're doing from the standpoint of someone who stands outside the faith, not because their conscience has a right to judge you, And certainly not to win their approval. Over in Galatians 1, when Paul's defending the gospel, he says, if I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now he uses the same term here at the end of our text when he says, I try to please everyone in everything I do. But the issue is a different one. It's not about curtailing my message to make people like me. Here it's about curtailing my rights (coughs) so that people will hear the message in all of its force. So he brings us back to issues of motivation. Do all to the glory of God. And he really does in that last resounding imperative of 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now that sounds like a very daunting command. When you think about it, it's an overwhelming command. But Paul knows and expects the Corinthians to realize that undergirding the call to the imitation of Christ is the good news of the achievement of Christ for us. In fact, he makes that explicit in the parallel text that I mentioned a few minutes ago. He goes on in Romans 15 when he says, Don't please yourself, but please your neighbor 
immediately to say, for Christ did not please himself. And then a few verses later, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And of course, you know in Philippians 2, when he says, you're to put others more important than yourselves, you're to mind not just your own interests, but the interests of others, immediately goes into that resounding song and celebration of the humiliation of Jesus. Let this mind be yours, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped and used for his own advantage, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. The gospel undergirds this daunting command. And Paul says, if the gospel's gotten a hold of you as it's gotten a hold of me, you will see that the greatest freedom is to lay down your rights so that no obstacle lies in you to others being introduced to the grace of Christ and being brought deeper into the grace of Christ. So our question is, my question for you, my question for myself is, what are the rights that you've been clinging to for dear life? Or what are the grudges or resentments that you've been holding on to because of injustices done to you, rights trampled, your rights trampled on? Or what rationalizations have you told yourself for doing your own thing and not really caring what anybody else thinks or how your conduct might influence others? Your presenting issue is probably going to look somewhat different from meat offered to idols at Corinth, but the heart issue is the same. If I'm set free by grace, knowing that my conscience is cleansed not by what I do or don't do, what I eat or don't eat, but cleansed by Jesus' blood and righteousness, how can I lay down my rights and glorify God, do all for the glory of God, so that others might, through me, come to hear the gospel of his grace and to see the fruit of it in our lives. So that (coughs) by the grace of the Holy Spirit, I might become a reflection of Christ who so loved us that he gave himself for us, laying down his rights in order to give us God's grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the amazing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Corinthians knew Paul face to face, and so they saw in his treatment of them, when they had eyes to see, a reflection of the grace of Jesus in his own willingness to lay down his rights. We see Jesus, the supreme demonstration of mercy and grace, laying down his rights for us. And we ask, Father, that you would form us into the image of Christ so that our grateful response to your grace might be such that others will be attracted to the gospel and nothing that they see in us would be a hindrance to their hearing the wonder of your mercy in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.